All right, so let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 7. Um, for those of you who weren't here last week, I handed out one of these little things. Again, I told everybody last week, the Bible is inerrant. This is not inerrant. So don't come up to me going, well, this is, my, this is our best guess as how the flow of the tribulation will go. And where some of the major things, we didn't put everything that happens in the tribulation here, but this is some of the major things. And on the backside is the three sets of divine judgments. Last week, we walked through the first set, which is the seven seal judgments. What we did explain is that these judgments aren't 21 consecutive judgments, but they are actually all part of one another. So we've got the first seven, which is the seal judgments. And in the seventh seal, that judgment is the seven trumpets. And within the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls or vials, depending on what translation you use. So really, there's seven sets of judgments. Does that all make sense? If you've been here for a while, we know that Revelation is written by John on the Isle of Patmos. It happened around 90 to 95 A.D. Um, It's split into three sections. Chapter 1 talks about the past. Chapter 2 and 3 talks about the present. And everything from the end of chapter 3 on talks about the future. Okay? So, as we're going through this, we also understand that Revelation can get a little confusing. We talked about the difficulty... Of trying to explain. Imagine you were John. Imagine you're in his sandals. And you're sitting there. And you're trying to explain. What you're seeing. You're seeing things that don't even exist. That don't make sense. How do you explain airplanes? How do you explain potential nuclear war? How would you explain? We we watched all the remembrances of 9-11. If John actually saw that scene, how would you even explain that to an audience in ancient antiquity? And so there are many cases where John just does the best he can to explain what he is seeing. But ultimately, we as believers need to understand that we can't get sidetracked with all the symbolism and all the numbers. And we got to stay focused in on what revelation really is. That is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And that is the key. That is the theme. Um, we understand that we are blessed for even reading through this passage, through this passage of scripture. And we are cursed if we decide to add or take anything away from that. I gave you the warning off, off the bat that, number one, I'm not the know-all of everything. I study as hard as I can. I ask questions if I don't know the answer. But there are brilliant theologians on all sides of the arguments. There are differing opinions on how certain things in Revelation needs to be interpreted. But the main theme is Jesus will come someday. And Revelation is about the revealing of that. So we are now in chapter 7. We've already gone through. We've talked about the rapture has happened. So if you look on the tribulation side, we have already walked through the first six seals. Now, if you look on your timeline, that means, man, we've already gone through half the tribulation. Well, Revelation is not necessarily written in chronological order. A lot of times in Scripture, they will give you the overall thesis, and then they will come back and fill in gaps. Tonight, that's what's happening. Tonight, after chapter 6, 
we get into chapter 7. And chapter 6 is dealing with the seals and dealing with judgment that is happening upon the earth. Chapter 7, if there's one word to take home, if this is a Sesame Street, today's message is brought to you by grace. And so today's theme is based on grace. And it's going to talk about two different groups of people. The 144,000 sealed and the great multitude in white robes. Now here's what you need to understand. This is sort of a, a, a in parentheses thing. We just talked about the first six judgments. And before we open the seventh seal, John says, hold on. Let me now tell you about two different groups of people. It doesn't mean what he's talking about happens after the sixth seal. In fact, as we look into this, many of the things we're going to talk about happens before any of the judgments start. So let's look at verse 17 of chapter 6. And after he talks about the six seals that have been opened, and before he gets to the seventh seal, which we will find at the beginning of chapter 8, he makes this statement. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? That's a powerful question. What has already been described is so unbelievable... And if you thought the first three and a half years are bad, the great wrath is yet to come. The last three and a half years are worse than the first. It's going to get bad. And if you look on the backside and you look at some of the things that happen in those first six seals, you go, oh my goodness. One fourth of all humanity dies. One-eighth of the supply of food. No rain. Unparalleled religious persecution. Worldwide wars and famines. Who could possibly survive this? And in chapter 7, John gives an answer of those who are going to do just that. Now, we talked about the rapture, and we believe, and again, we can't be dogmatic on this, but we believe that, that the rapture happens at the beginning of the tribulation because the descriptions between the rapture and the second coming are apples and oranges. It, it, it's Michigan, Ohio State. It's like two opposite ends of the spectrum. By the way, we won again. Um, and so, we see that the church is raptured out of the tribulation. The church is not mentioned during the tribulation at all. We understand that the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, has been removed. Now here's what I need to add to that. When we say the Holy Spirit's been removed, we don't mean that there is no Holy Spirit in the tribulation. Because what is God? He's omnipresent, right? So he can't, he can't be removed from a scene. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit that has been enacted within the church has been removed. So the church is no longer there. And so for one brief moment, imagine this. I don't know if anybody's ever really thought about this. After the rapture, for one brief moment, there are no believers on the face of the earth. There are no believers on the face of the earth. There is no one who is a believer in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is no one saved. 
So who is going to spread the word? How do people spread the word? How do we get from no one on the face of the earth saved, and then we see later on in Revelation that there are great multitudes that you can't even count that come out of the tribulation. Great martyrs, and and they were referenced in chapter 4 and 5. These great martyrs that are calling on God to avenge the blood. How do they even know God? Well, there's a couple ways. God's word doesn't get raptured. The gospel that has been proclaimed to millions of people is still in the minds of millions of people. I would wager a guess that the minute the church disappears, yes, there's going to be great chaos and confusion and people are going to be looking for scapegoats, but I bet you there's going to be a lot of people going, oh, they were right. (laughs) And they're immediately going to turn to God's word. Hopefully. There'll be tracks, there'll be, they didn't know it back then, there's going to be DVDs and internet or who knows whatever's going to be there when the actual rapture happens. But there will be resources there. And now the world is going to be looking for those who are going to proclaim the word. And so let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. So after this, this is not a reference to the judgments. This is most likely back again, a reference to the beginning of the tribulation. We saw that that very same phrase at the beginning of chapter 4. And we see four angels restraining judgment. Restraining judgment. And the reason why we believe this, this is now going back and saying, here's, here's what this looks like. Here's how we're going to get the word out in the tribulation with the church not here. We see four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. Throughout the Bible, often wind represents the movement of God's word, the movement of, in many cases, judgment. They're holding back this judgment. Now, whether this is literal to where there is actually no wind on the earth, which is possible, again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but if that is the case, then, yeah, that'll bring about a bunch of disaster. I mean, we, we take for granted wind. If there's no wind blowing on the earth, that'll bring, back, bring about massive disasters throughout the world. Imagine what happens when the sea becomes still. We see on here the four corners. I just want to let you know, the Bible is not saying that there are literally four corners and we're going to fall off of one of the edges. It makes for great movies and great sequels in Pirates of the Caribbean, but um, the Bible at no point said there was four corners. And, and, and here's, here's one of the things we need to understand as we, as we look in the Bible Because a lot of skeptics will come up, well, didn't the church proclaim that the the earth was flat one day? And the sad truth is, yeah, many in the church did. Because science proclaimed that for many years. And the church, instead of resting on what the Bible says, now the Bible is clear that the earth is circular. 
God sits upon the circle of the earth. There's many references in the Bible to the fact that the earth is not flat. When it talks about four corners and and you see that reference, it's basically talking about the entirety of the north, south, east, west. It's talking about the entire stretch of the of the earth not that the earth is actually flat and has corners like a chessboard then i saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living god he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our god Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, so let's talk about this 144,000. What does this mean? Okay, who are the 144,000? Well, the Bible seems to be fairly clear, and I think we would probably want to look at this literally. It it seems to say from chapter, verse 5, all the way through verse 8, that these are Jewish people that these are jewish people from the 12 tribes of israel okay remember who is not here during the tribulation the church from about um from a point of about two thousand years and of course we can't tell you the exact amount because we don't know when um, the rapture is going to happen but the nation of israel or 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 God's people have sort of been, he hasn't kicked them out, but they've sort of been put on the bench. And the church has been the forerunners for God ever since. But there will come a time when the church is removed and all focus now comes back to Israel. And comes back to God's people. Now we look at these 12 tribes. And apparently in the tribulation... God is going to seal 144,000 people who are going to be witnesses for him. We don't know how that looks. We probably shouldn't take the literal fact that it's on their foreheads. That's not what that means. He's not going to go and pop them on the forehead and seal them. But a seal is basically he is protecting these people for the work that he is about to install on them. And we will get to this in later weeks as we watch what happens with these 144,000. We see them referenced in chapter 9 and in chapter 14. But apparently these 144,000 are legitimately Jewish race people from the 12 tribes. Now, if you go up to someone who is Jewish and say, what tribe are you from? They're, they're in AD 70, all the records... All the records were gone. If anyone knew what their tribe was, that that went away during the dispersion. Okay? But God still knows. And so apparently, 12,000 from each tribe. Now, I will tell you, there is another side that says, you know what, this, all this means is just the full completion of God's, God's people are going to be sealed. I don't, I don't get that from the text. Okay? But again, that's something you can study. Some people will notice this list and they'll walk down the 12 tribes. Some of you, um, like me, for many years just were, sort of skipped that. I went, okay, I hate numbers. Okay, the great multitude. And, and I just went on, okay? That's why numbers is very rarely read in the Bible. Um, but if you actually look at this, you're going to go, hey, wait a second. Someone's missing. 
Anybody see anybody missing there? Where's the tribe of Dan? Where's the tribe of Ephraim? And what on earth is Joseph and Levi doing in there? Here's my best answer to that. We don't know exactly why John has listed the 12 tribes this way. In fact, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, the 12 tribes really doesn't have a concrete order in how they're listed. Very rarely are they repeated in the same order. Why would Levi be, be mentioned? Well, if we go back into the Old Testament, we, we see the 12 tribes listed. And Joseph's not one of them. We got Manasseh and Ephraim out of there. And Levi, what, what was the tribe of Levi? What was their job? Yeah, they were the priestly line, so they weren't part of that. What happened and what was no longer necessary once Jesus Christ came on earth? Who is now our high priest? Jesus. So there's a a very good possibility that John is going, you know what? Levi is no longer a priestly line. We don't need the, the group of Levi to do that. So that could be a reason why they are now added into this. And then as far as Dan being um, left out, we don't know why. There are several places in the Bible that talk about, about Dan being cursed, being that snake on the road. But I'm not going to pretend like I know. We don't necessarily know why there is a different order here. And to be honest, it probably doesn't matter altogether too much. Um, but here are the, here are the 144,000 that are listed. And what is their job? Well, we will find out that these are going to be the witnesses of God in the tribulation. We will read later about the two great witnesses, but we will also read about the 144,000 who become on fire for God. Okay, so we don't know how that happens. We look at the 144,000. Maybe these are, are um, Jewish people that go, you know what? I am authentically waiting for my Messiah. And I authentically don't believe Jesus was it. And then maybe it's the rapture when that happens that triggers within many of the Jewish people going, okay, I was wrong, and now I'm going to start worshiping, and I'm going to proclaim the word that I know, and I'm going to start connecting the Old and the New Testament. That would be my theory on how we all of a sudden get 144,000 out of that. Does that sort of make sense? Let's look at the great white, or the great multitude in white robes. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So who is this? What group of people is this? This is everybody. This is everybody. Jewish people, Gentile people, this is everybody. Before me was a great multitude that no one could count, not 144,000, not a specific amount, that no one can count. And the reason why I'm saying this is these two are not the same. Some people believe that the 144,000 is the same as the great white. It's not the same people. From every language standing before me or before the throne of the Lamb. Now imagine John seeing this great multitude of people. I would wager a guess there's some people that he'd go, oh, wow, I haven't seen that race before. That's where, I mean, because we've literally got a great multitude of people that are standing before the throne. They were wearing white robes 
and were holding palm branches in their hands. We discussed earlier what white robes mean, purity, that they have been cleansed, and they are holding palm branches. Now, we remember that. We, we celebrate Palm Sunday every, every year, and that's the week before Easter, and that's, the, that's when the Messiah came in um, to Jerusalem. And the tradition with palm branches mean it's a sign of victory, It's a sign of completion and joy. And it's also a sign of deliverance. So as they're laying the palm branches down in front of Jesus for for Jesus and the donkey and, and, and his followers to walk across, they're saying, here comes our deliverer. We now have victory. Now, of course, they turned on him five days later when it wasn't the type of victory they were looking for. But here we see this again. And they cried out in a loud voice. Now we've already made the distinction between the 144,000 and the great multitude in white robes. We're going to make another distinction between the multitude in the white robes referenced here. And that what we saw in a couple chapters ago about those who had crowns on. And bowls of incense. These are two different groups. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Have you noticed there's a lot of worship going on in heaven? And it's, again, we talked about this. It it is amazing worship. I don't even want to... I want to, but I I, I don't know if I could even comprehend what it would be like to watch an angel fall on their face in worship. It's got to be an insane concert. I know that. Then one of the elders asked me, basically a leading question... These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. That seems like an impossibility there. You're washing the robes with blood and making them white. But it is the blood of the lamb that cleanses us from our sins. Those that were mentioned in earlier chapters with the crown, those are the church saints. Also with white robes. These are the great multitude coming out of where? The tribulation. So we see just in one chapter sort of a bookend here. We get the 144,000 right off in the beginning that are basically commissioned to go, and we'll, find, we'll see that in later chapters, go and be my witnesses, and we see the effects of that with the great multitude that are coming to Jesus. Yes, it's going to be painful, and it's going to be a living hell to be in the tribulation. But there's another way to look at the tribulation. It's going to be one of the great moments in all of eternity. Evangelism... 
and people proclaiming Jesus and people coming to Jesus in multitudes that have never been known in the history of the world. It's going to be powerful. And so you got this sort of, it's going to be horrible and there's going to be judgment and there's going to be pain. But within this pain, there are going to be people bowing down to Jesus Christ. They're going to be coming to Jesus. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne, who is that? Jesus, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. That Anytime you, you, you see water mentioned in the Bible, it's most often um, symbolizing life. And running water symbolizes eternal life. It just keeps going. And you have this freedom to keep drinking from this eternal life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so we take this brief moment in chapter 7. And John says, Here, here's the good news that happens in the tribulation. I just walked you through the horrors of the first six seals. And I'm about to tell you what happens when the seventh seal is opening. But don't lose heart. But here's what happens in the midst of this. Here's the power that's going to happen. People are going to come to Jesus. Some have asked, well, well how, do pe- how, how do people come to Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit going to be able to indwell them again? Is it the same as what would happen if me or you accepts Jesus, as it says in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Or in Ephesians where it talks about the Spirit being, being um, placed within us and, and sealing us. I believe, and again, we're not going to be dogmatic on this, I, I believe honestly that, I mean, and most theologians will follow this, that the work of the Spirit is going to happen in the tribulation, but it's going to be very much like it was in the Old Testament. It's going to be very much like it was in the Old Testament. The indwelling of the Spirit within, within people is, is not going to happen. Like it happens with the church. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He deposits the Spirit within us and, and no one can take us out. It's very possible that people can walk away People get, get pressured to walk away from Jesus during the tribulation. We will see in later chapters this whole idea of the mark of the beast. And how people are not to accept this mark of the beast. And we'll talk about those um, coming up. And so that's chapter 7. And chapter 7, one of my favorite chapters in Revelation. Because it's just sort of a... Okay. God is still winning. People are turning to God. There's still hope. God is still patient for those who will turn to Him. Last week, um, during the question and answer, um, I made I made a, just a passing comment that a couple people went, "Whoa, whoa!" 
And so I wanted to uh, talk about that for a second. I mentioned that um, when, when, we, when we look at the rapture and, and, we, um, and I think someone asked, hey, what, what, what do you think about this um, um, sermon that says, hey, um, Jesus will come back at this time or that time? And I said, well, you know what? The Bible's fairly clear that, that no one knows the time or the hour, not, not even the sun. And then I just made a passing comment like an idiot, and then I didn't <laughs> follow up on it. And I said, but there's a good chance that Jesus now does know the time when he would come back. And so let me, let me explain that. Do I believe that Jesus currently, right now, as the Son of God, knows when he will return? And um, I, I honestly believe, yes, he does. And here's why. Um, Jesus, when he was on earth, had to forego many of his divine attributes, willingly. Left, left some of the omniscience. Jesus obviously was present in one place the whole time. Now Jesus, if the Father, Father willed, was able to tap into any of these at any time. But when they were asking him in should have wrote that down. I believe in Matthew 24. Um, when the time or the hour would happen, Jesus said, you know what? That's not for you to know. That's only for the Father to know. Nobody in heaven, the angels, not even, not even the Son knows. It's not important. And at that moment, as Jesus being fully human, that, that would have been a true statement. Here's why I believe that's different. Jesus no longer is on earth as a fully human person. There's a big churchy, it's not even a churchy word, it's a seminary theological word called the hypostatic union, which talks about, which tries to explain the idea that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man at the same time. How does that happen? Talk amongst yourselves. And it's one of those crazy things. Sort of like, like the Trinity. How many of you have had complete success explaining the Trinity to someone? Yeah, that's a fun one. Well, it's one, yeah, um, let me get back to you. And that's pretty much what it is. And, and for, for things like the Trinity or the hypostatic union and all that kind of stuff, I'm okay with going, you know what? I'm not quite as smart as God. In fact, I'm not even close. And, and if I could comprehend God, he probably wouldn't be much of a God to me. And so the things that we for sure don't understand. In the Trinity, I, I get the concept of it, and I, I fully believe that there's one God and three persons, and I, I fully believe that, and I believe that's what the Bible talks about. Um, I also believe fully that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. And while, as we see in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus was fully human. And the reason why Jesus needed to be fully human is because we had a disease called sin. And there was not a single human that could take care of that disease. Nobody's blood could wash away the debt of sin. The only way you can replace something that was once perfect is with something that is what? Perfect. I remember when I was young, I broke... Um, well, the dog did it, but I got blamed. Um, we broke um, some of my grandma's china, and it just crashed to the ground. And I'm like pointing to the dog... And as I'm getting spanked, I'm like, I'm getting you later. And, I do, and there was a bunch of pieces. I'm like, well, I'll just fix it. I can, I can glue it together. I can tape it together. What do you think my grandma did when I came back with it taped? All better. The only way to replace that is with a new perfect plate. The only way to, to fix the sin is with perfection. 
And so God, in his grace, had to become flesh, had to die on a cross. His blood had to have been shed, his perfect blood, the perfect lamb had to be shed for us so that we would have an opportunity to receive that as a gift. Once Jesus went back up to heaven and ascended back up into heaven, I believe there was no reason for him to keep any part of his divine knowledge, his divine power at bay anymore. I believe right now the Son of God is omniscient, fully omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And so I believe, yes, today the Son of God knows when he's coming back. So that's, that's what I was talking about. And I actually went into Lynn's office um, what was it, earlier in the week, and I was like, just out of curiosity, what do you believe on this? Because <laughs> I could just imagine, yeah, Chris, I wanted to talk to you about that. You're fired. And, um, <laughs> and I didn't even lead him on. I just said, hey, do you think Jesus knows right now uh, when he's coming back? And I was just staring at him, and Lynn did one of these things, put down his book. He's like, <sighs> his, his button was stretching, sort of like mine is now. And, and he looked at me, and he smiled. He's all, yes, I believe he knows. And then we, we agreed to agree on, on that. But what I'm going to say is, you don't have to agree with us. Um, it, it really, it, it's a minor thing. So if you want to say, no, I, I still believe Jesus doesn't know, sweet. That's cool. It doesn't bother me, but that's just answering Um, that reference from last week. So we've done chapter 7. We're going to be doing chapter 8 next week. Um, Before we get to questions, I have good news. Right now, in the offices, there's a computer screen that's up and a bunch of files going... Which indicates that tomorrow, all the Mind podcasts should be up on the internet. And so you can go back and listen um, to my obnoxious voice, um, <laughs> all you want, or you can go back into yesteryear and listen to whatever. But um, all the all the uh, mind podcasts are up, and we're still working on a system to try to get the notes out to you. Um, so yeah, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll um, open up some questions. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your absolute grace. We thank you for your Son Jesus Christ who came to earth, who died, who rose again. We thank you for the opportunity we have to have a relationship, not a religion, but a relationship with the creator of the universe. We thank you for that promise that once we accept Jesus Christ, you will never leave us, never forsake us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we see in chapter 7 here, that even in the, the midst of incredible judgment that you still will have a remnant that will rise up and proclaim the gospel that there will be a people that will go through immense trials to proclaim your name and that in just a short time multitudes upon multitudes will be in heaven forever We thank you for your patience and your grace with us. And Heavenly Father, we we long for the day to be face to face with our Savior Jesus. We long for the day to be able to fall on our faces and worship him forever and ever. And Heavenly Father, forgive us for today that we so often don't do those things. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you encourage each and every one of us. We thank you so much for what happened this last week and this last month with the whole India ask. Forgive us for lacking faith at certain times. And we thank you for showing up like you always do. Heavenly Father, I pray that throughout everything that happens in this church and in our community and in our, in our lives, that your name is proclaimed and it's your name that is made famous. Heavenly Father, be with us. Um, bring us back safely next week. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, we have time for a couple questions, and there, I'm sure there are some. Um, so hammer away. Um, speak loud because I have no monitor system up here. So I've got a... Anybody out there? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? There. I have a friend that uh, is a Jehovah Witness, and she thinks that they're going to be one of the 144,000. How do they rationalize that? Wow. I have a friend who is a Jehovah Witness, too. I can't believe I totally forgot to mention that. Uh, my best friend growing up um, was a Jehovah Witness, and so I grew up um, many times at his house and, and just absolutely curious about this whole idea of Jehovah Witness. And, and every birthday I would have, and I'd show him my presence, and I would see him smile sad i don't get presents and all <laughs> um and i remember in high school playing on the tennis team and we had to fight fight for him to be able to play on the tennis team because the church didn't want him to be associated with the school even though he went to school but oh well um and so the jehovah witness the jehovah witness why do they believe that the 144,000 is actually um them is actually the um jehovah witness well um a guy named charles taz russell way back in the late 1800s um started a, a, an organization called the um, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And it was just a small um, group of people that sort of splintered off from the Orthodox Church. And what happens is sometimes that's okay. They just, you know, we, we don't like drums or we do like drums or we don't like the way he dresses or whatever. Fine, worship Jesus. But in many cases, groups will splinter off and they'll get into what we would call a cult. Um, C-U-L-T, and, it, and they will start preaching a different version of Jesus Christ. They will start presenting new truth and new doctrine, and in uh, many cases they start out with the same Bible, and then when there's con conflicts, you'll all of a sudden you'll see a new Bible. And so the Jehovah Witness, um, in my opinion, is a cult. And, um, and, it, and it's a group that was started by Charles Taz Russell, um, who ended up interpreting his own Bible, the New World Translation, even though um, when pressed in a court of law for a diff... It was a great moment. Um, Charles Taz Russell was on the stand for something totally different. And the lawyer, being a Christian, and for whatever the judge allowed this through, said, hey, by the way, can you read this? It was in Greek, and he's like, I have no clue. <laughs> but it, so he had no idea how to translate a Bible. But he did do that. Um, and what happened is you get a lot of these weird beliefs. And for the Jehovah Witness, um, as in many cults, they don't really even rest on the Bible, they rest on um, what they would have the awake or the watchtower, and those sort of guide their beliefs and thoughts. And so the idea made sense back then. Hey, there's only 3,000 of us, and someday 144,000 of us, we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to be in sort of a second plane of heaven where we rule over the other people that make it, but they're not quite our level. 
And they would have a time where at churches, they would, if you drank the communion and all that, um, you were indicating you were one of the 144,000. Well, fast forward 100 years, there's a lot more than 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. And so that, that has sort of been skewed a little bit. But it all started out by them just saying, hey, see, the Bible talks about us. We're actually the 144,000. And so that, in Charles Taz Russell's mind, that was, that was it. Right now, they sort of really don't push that quite as much because it makes a little less sense now than what it did. And if you're a Jehovah Witness in here, I absolutely love you and I'd love to talk to you. Sorry. <laughs> Derek, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> uh, for me, in thinking about Jesus, there's always two questions you have to answer about Jesus when you're answering a question about Jesus. His divine nature and his human nature. Mm-hmm. In his human nature, did Jesus die? Well, he died in his human nature, but his divine nature, he did not die. So if you're asking if there's a question that Jesus did not know the answer to, in his divine nature, he knows the answer to everything. Absolutely. But in his human nature, when he was on the earth, there would be things that he would not know. Correct. And so in, in that, um, in his human nature, it's not, let me phrase this right, it's not that you're correct, he didn't know in his human nature. He had access to know if the Father would allow him. Because there were many times in his human nature that he was able to give prophetic statements and utterances. And he would know the future. And there were many times in his human nature, i.e. walking on water and, and, and raising, that he was able to access a piece of that divine nature. But that was at God's willing. Okay, And so... If God willed that for him to know, then yes. Um, but Jesus, you're right. Jesus, in his human nature, would not have known. And so that was, an, that was an accurate statement. Could God have given him the knowledge at that point to know? Yes. Wasn't necessary. I'd like to ask about uh, the two guys, I forget who they are now, that never died. They just went straight to heaven. And when they're coming, when you feel that they will be uh, reappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, the two witnesses um, most likely happened um, during the first um, um, three and a half years. Um, on the timeline, you'll see I, I've listed them. Um, they, we'll get to them a little more um, in depth when we get to chapter 11. Um, but yeah, there are two witnesses that are, are the forerunners um, for God during this time. Um, they are not human beings from the, the tribulation that all of a sudden turned their life over to Jesus. These are, these are different than what the 144,000. Yeah, so, so you're right. There will be two witnesses um, um, that are mentioned in, um, in um, the tribulation, and we will definitely talk about them. And there's a time where they, they both die. They're laying in, front, they're laying in the streets, and it talks about the whole world can see them at one time. And, and, and so we'll actually, I, I won't answer it fully right now, um, but they, we'll talk about them in depth in, in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 11. But the cool thing about the, the two witnesses for years, hundreds of years, skeptics went to the two witnesses and saying, yeah, see, the Bible's dumb. There is no way on this earth that the whole world can see this at the same time. There's no way. They'd lean back in their chairs, um, put their whatever on their chest, and they, there's no way. And for years, the church went, well... I believe God, God's true and that somehow the whole world, and they were trying to figure out how could the whole world see them. Maybe the whole world would come to Jerusalem and see them. Well, now we know 
that within a second, people could take out their phone and see anything at once. <laughs> so there, there will be a way when the two witnesses are laying in the street. So I think um, they're, they're one of my um, more enjoyable topics in, in the uh, Revelation because it's just seeing how the Revelation unfolds, something that made absolutely no sense before TV, before satellite, before, and who knows before what's coming next that we will have access to. All of a sudden, we look and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's no problem. But we'll, we'll definitely talk about them and, and who those might be. Because pe- there, there's people that go, hey, maybe that's going to be Moses. Maybe that's going to be Enoch. Maybe that's going to be Elijah. And so um, we'll talk about, or maybe it's going to be someone we don't know. We'll, we'll talk about who we think those two people might be. But they're fascinating. Yes. So this may be a Pandora's box question. but So when it talks about the elect and the predestined, Obviously, those of us who would be raptured would be part of that. But post-rapture, during tribulation, are then those saved during the tribulation part of the elect, part of those he foreknew? Is there a new book of life? Is he adding names to the book of life? Or are the those saved in the tribulation already written down? Okay, you, you have just opened a can of worms. You're evil. Um, so, no, you just opened a whole sermon series. But basically, um, that's a great question. Um, um, and, and it just sort of comes down to um, what side are you on? Do you, do you believe there is an elect that God has already predetermined um, and, uh, that are, are going to be saved and those are not? And so your belief on that will sort of um, give you the glasses to view the 144,000 and, and how that's um, going to come about. So as far as the 144,000... Um, it says that they, they that, that they have been chosen, they will be sealed. How that happens, we don't know. We don't know if it's, yeah, God, God's, God's got these guys planned and, and it's por- part of the whole Reformed theology or if these people are just people that are going to see the rapture or see something and go, it's Jesus, and they're right off the bat, they're going to come... Uh, come to Jesus, and God knows their number is 144,000. Um, I guarantee they're not going to be in tribulation um, 432, wearing t-shirts saying I'm one of them or anything like that, but God does know the number. But as far as the whole predestination and all that, um, there, there's two sides to that coin, and I'm not going to flip it tonight. <laughs> so, so, but does that, does that make sense? And it, it, it really, we don't, we don't know how God is choosing those 144,000, how they're going to end up becoming the forerunners. What we do know from Scripture, it seems to indicate they are literally, ethnically Jewish people, um, and they are from the, the 12 tribes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be powerful what they do during the tribulation, and we'll get to that. Yep. Yes, All right, I'm going to give you a break since you just had that hard one. When's the, next, the second annual Piper Life? Because that was awesome. Oh, <laughs> okay. So we're, we're talking about um, future issues. So when's the next annual pie fight? Um, when the next person wants to run it and we'll... <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Huh? Winter. Winter? Oh, there's no doubt on that. I, we don't even need to... Yeah, if we ever do a pie fight again, it's not going to be at 103. And so the funny thing on the pie fight... Just so you guys know, I, I had a book about this thick from Guinness that detailed every last specific way this had to go about. And if we deviated from any of it, 
the record was no good. It had to be this exact type of paper plate, this exact type of whip, or whipped cream, shaving cream. Had to be to this level. This is crazy. And one of the unfortunate things were everybody had to enter one at a time. Cannot deviate from that. And so if you were in the pie fight, you noticed the Guinness guy was there and he was watching every single person. And there were certain cases where he went, absolutely not. Um, that one-year-old is not going to be in this thing. Okay, and so... So, yeah, so it took 40 minutes to get everybody through. Now, to be honest, I did pre-warn people. I said, hey, we're not starting this till the last person, so you might want to wait in the shade. But, um, yeah, so it, that was crazy. So we won't do it in the summer again. Yes, and, I, I, and I'm telling you, if we would have had another 200 people and we had to wait another 20 minutes for them to get in, I think we might have had a, a chaos. It would have been tribulation. It would have happened. <laughs> it would have happened. There would have been people raptured and ponchos on the ground, and it would have been gone. So, yeah. Huh? Yes. Yeah. And I, after the pie fight, I came back in here and I sat in that chair over there and I just went, I think I might pass out. And I had to rest because I had to interview Suresh in like 30 minutes. I was like, oh no. And I hadn't thrown up in 30 years. And I was like, it might happen. It, it, it was so hot. It was unbearable. But it was fun. <laughs> yes. Who are you? <laughs> Did you want to address the question last week about the capitalization of God's name? Oh, yes. Um, so, remember how I told you that I, I'm just not an English major and I don't know any? That's my wife, by the way, Barbie. And and so I went immediately and I said, okay, because she's a copy editor and she knows all that kind of, kind of stuff. I'm like, so the whole idea about God not being capitalized in here, and she's all, God's not capitalized anywhere in, in the Bible. Is that correct? Yep. The he, I mean, not God, but the he or the him is not capitalized. That that doesn't need to be capitalized for it to be. So if you're writing your letter and you, you just have, and I do this all the time because she edits a lot of my thing. I'll capitalize he just because I'm talking about Jesus and I'm going to capitalize that H. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be that way. So when we see um, in the Bible, it, it's the lowercase h. It's okay, Zondervan's not evil, or, or whatever translation's not evil. The he or the him does not have to be capitalized, unless it begins a sentence, like in normal English or, yeah. Yeah, and so, and nowhere in the Bible will you see he or him capitalized unless it's in, in, in that translation. So, yes, yes, so, yeah, so I, I, I even learned that. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to still capitalize it in my emails. I don't care, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, well, we got we to gotta let you go or we're going to have a bunch of teachers in here gabooming us. So thank you guys for coming. Hopefully we'll see you next week. Check us out on the mind.